This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom, shalom. So happy to be with everyone. Um, sorry, it has to be, you know, two-dimensional, but I will try to be as three-dimensional a speaker as possible. You know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm kind of an action figure. Spend a lot of my time in uh, heavy action situations, and I'm actually pretty, pretty excited. Uh, even tomorrow, Friday, in Jerusalem, we have two things going on. The waves are big, olas grandes. Yeah, we got big waves coming in, and uh, uh, and we've also got, uh, you know, on on the way to surfing in in Israel, you have uh, mountain bike parks, you know, multiple mountain bike parks. So uh, you could see. Uh, if you saw my mountain bike, you just wouldn't believe the uh, this amazing bike, you know, that I ride down these super steep terraces, terraces in Jerusalem. Yeah, say hello to my little friend, and that's my that's my big mountain bike, and um, and I got my guitar over there. I'll play for you a little later, and um, and uh, it, it'd be cool if any of the any of the I have, I have three people who are possibly on my screen. Uh, whether it's uh, Rabbi Tussier or I have Shebit Ajim or Isaac uh, Siton, if any of you put on your cameras, it'd make life wonderful because you happen to be at the top of my screen. Besides the um, besides the translator, oh Isaac, yes, yes. So so yeah, because I I need all. I mean, speaking into a camera. Oh my gosh, I can't believe this has happened to us. Anyway, I'm blessing. Oh wow, look who is here. Um, all of my friends came up on the top, all the rabbis. Um, thank you. The Rabinos, Los Rabinos, Hachamim. So, anyway, so I was born a poor black child in uh, America, in the U.S. I don't mean literally black. Uh, I was not black. And I wasn't poor either. But what I mean by a poor black child is that uh, growing up in the mansion I grew up in with a father who's, I think my father probably has the most in common with Donald Trump. You know, he, he was a real, you know, capitalist numbers guy, you know, and it was all about, you know, you know, making money. And, and so we grew up in a mansion in a place called West L.A., a place called uh, Brentwood. And uh, that's where uh, uh, you might have heard of certain people from there, O.J. Simpson. Um, he, uh, he's in jail now, but I don't know, maybe he's out of jail. I don't know where he is, but OJ Simpson was a famous football player. He lived uh, around the corner from us. I went to school with his kids. Um, Dustin Hoffman actually lives in my house. He bought the house for my father. And anyway, but we were, we were living in that kind of situation. And why was I a poor black child? I was a poor black child because, because I was, I don't mean black child, like Black Lives Matter child, like uh, like in America, like the U.S. I'm talking about Ethiopian, meaning African, you know, like like swollen, distended belly, swollen skull, toothpick arms with like flies everywhere. And what I mean by that is, is because I'm a Jewish, uh, I was a Jewish boy growing up in a world that was, uh, you know, I had, I had a massive hard drive for Judaism, you know, massive hard drive, like multiple terabytes of hard drive. But the only program I was given growing up was calculator, <laughs> how to make money. You know? And my, and you know, the computer was constantly blowing up because like, you know, you don't need a terabyte of hard drive for a calculator on a computer. Um, what does play well with the, with the hard drive, and I call it the Sinai hard drive, 
because I had a, a hard drive from Mount Sinai, from Har Sinai. And uh, what plays, what, what runs well there is Torah software. And, and I, I didn't, wasn't raised with Torah software. I only learned the Aleph Bet when I was 23 years old in Jerusalem when I came to Eshat Torah, where I met Rabbi Tussier, actually. And uh, I know I always tell this story, but Rabbi Tussier was coming to my classes every day. And, and I know he looks like he's 18, but uh, I didn't know he was actually married with a bunch of kids. So, so he, after each class, this kid came up to me saying, you come to my people, you teach Torah. And, you know, I've heard that before. I, I paid no attention to him, but after about a couple of weeks, of, once he got back to Mexico, I, they already sent me a ticket. Next thing I know, I'm in Mexico City teaching. He's a real get-it-done get guy with a team of get-it-done people, and I really appreciate that. And, I, and for me, growing up a surfer in California where, like, I didn't have to take responsibility for anything. I mean, literally, I, with, if you... Uh, if you finished wearing something, you take it off, you throw it on the floor, and the housekeepers come and pick it up for you. You know, and they, my people had to explain to the housekeepers that they have to start putting my T-shirts like in different levels because otherwise I'll keep taking the clean one off and I'll wear the same shirt every single day. This is why I love this outfit. I can wear the same thing every day, and no one ever knows the difference. You know, I, <laughs> I, I grew up not wanting to think about these things, and I, and I still don't have to think about these things. Can wear the same outfit. It's wonderful. I love it. You know, most people think. Uh, people ask me, "Doesn't it cramp your lifestyle to be Haredi?" You know, with the black and the white and everything. And I'm like, if you knew me growing up, I was like, I was like Donald Trump's disaster son. Yeah, who like he only wanted he wanted real things, relationships and connectivity and spirituality and and like you know, I was a disaster of a son for my father and. Uh, um, but our, uh, you should know, though, our love for each other was amazing. We were very, very, very connected and still are. He's 90 years old now. And he, after he sold his house to Dustin Hoffman, he now lives on the cliffs of, uh, of, the, of Malibu overlooking the Pacific Ocean, a beautiful home there. So if you ever want to make Shabbat on the, overlooking the ocean in L.A., you know, look, up, look me up, I'll see if they can have you. If you don't mind waiting till the pandemic ends, that would be much better. Okay, so um, anyway, so I grew up there, and uh, and my father kind of lived vicariously through me. He was a workaholic businessman manufacturing clothing, and he lived through my adventures, and he sent me on all all these amazing adventures throughout my life. And um, and but but what I discovered, I mean, I know this now, but at the time that there's a, that Jews are like three D Jews, three D. You know what the three Ds are? distracted, depressed, and devoted. So I lived all three. I lived the years of distraction. You know, I was out there surfing. And, and I've also surfed in Mexico many times, by the way. And I'm, I'm, I'm still waiting for... When are you guys inviting me for a Shabbaton to Puerto Escondido? Yeah, I've surfed Puerto Escondido. <laughs> what do you, you do meters there or, or feet? I, I surf meters. Yeah, I've done like... Uh, I've surfed Puerto Escondido... I was out of Puerto Escondido in uh, about 10-meter waves there. Insane, insane waves. I mean, just one of the scariest days of my life. And, uh, and in fact, uh, everyone on the shore was screaming the whole time. We could hear them screaming. Why are they screaming? Maybe we're supposed to go deeper out. There's a bigger wave coming. So we're going deeper out. You know what they were screaming? They were screaming that there was a 25-foot shark between us and the shore. 
which maybe was good that we were going deeper. They were saying, come in. And we were thinking they're screaming, there's a bigger wave. So we're going out more. So anyway, the, so I, I, I grew up with this dis- extreme distraction. So, so when you have this Torah hard drive, when you have this Sinai in your heart, so you got to distract yourself with something. And so I, I distracted myself mostly with surfing and mountain biking and, and, uh, and lots of big parties. And I really love that the Jewish community of Mexico knows how to party, by the way, because that's how I grew up. I grew up, we like, we partied all the time. I mean, we were, we knew how to party. And uh, I remember once I was crossing the Mexico border in Baja, I surfed in Mexico and Baja a lot. And uh, like every month I'd be down there and, and coming back, we wanted to bring back Corona and the, sorry to mention the pandemic, but we wanted to bring back Coronas to, uh, to LA and, and, um, and we, uh, oh, so I, I had a, a four wheel drive truck called a Toyota 4Runner. And we figured out how to get into the panels of the truck. Now, we didn't want to smuggle drugs. We just want to smuggle beer. And it was the old Coronas, thinner bottles. You Can you still get, like, the old Coronas in Mexico? Yeah, they're kind of like you can, like, chew gum. They're, they're like you can blow bubbles with it. You know, you kind of wonder if they even clean the bottles. And uh, and so it was, it was cases of 20. Can you still get a case of 20 Coronas in Mexico? I doubt it. So anyway, but those were the Corona. It was a totally different animal today. I mean, Corona today is like Budweiser compared to that stuff. That stuff was unique beer. You know, how, many, how much beer can you like blow bubbles with? So, so we, um, anyway, we lined the, my truck with uh, my whole truck. The panels of the truck were all beer bottles. And so every, when we we're driving up to the border, it was like, ching, 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 of all the bottles. So we had to drive around Tijuana for a while just to get the bottles to settle in place. And uh, one time they actually had me open up my truck. I'm like, oh, no. We opened up the back of the truck, and you could see, like, the panels of the truck were kind of folding in towards the inside the car because the bottles were pushing in. And you could see even a little of the glass bottles, but, and we are just like, and then, thank God, they're like, okay, go ahead. And we took off with another, uh, you know, five, six cases of Corona in my, in my truck. Anyway, but that was all distraction as well. The parties and the surfing, and we were just trying to distract ourselves as best as we could. Because if you don't distract yourself, so then, then you get stuck with dealing with meaning in life. And, and for some people, having no meaning in life is fine, but, but for the Jewish people, it's, it's not fine. And in fact, there's a great book, a very simple book to read called Viktor Frankl's um, Man's Search for Meaning, where he he's a great therapist and he discusses the meaninglessness being the source of depression. And that leads us to our next D. First D is distracted. Second D is is depressed. And And that is that if you weren't good at distracting yourself, I was very good at distracting myself, but after enough years of it, it like I couldn't be distracted anymore. So what happened was I got to the point where I was, where I, I was depressed because I had, I had this like incredible desire for there to be meaning, meaning I deep down believed there was something more meaningful than what meets the eye, than the material physical world. Like I believed that there was something more meaningful out there. There was something, there had to be. And now that kind of kept me going for years, except when I got to university and in university, you know, they were teaching us a very 
what they call materialist philosophy. Materialist philosophy doesn't mean, um, it doesn't mean that you're into shopping. That's also materialist philosophy. But there's a, but the intellectual college university materialist philosophy means that the material world is all you get. What you see is what you get. There's nothing beyond the physical. And here I was studying in university and we had like, you know, it was like, you know, it was, it was basically athe- it was education in atheism. And, and I took a lot of these philosophy professors to task and they knew what they knew more than I did. I did. And I, I basically lost and came up with the fact that it's meaningless and that the world is meaningless. And that was cool for about a day, you know, whoa, the world is meaningless. Like make your own meaning, you know, existentialism, you know, that they, you know, make your own meaning out of life. And that was cute and sweet for a few minutes, maybe a few days, maybe a week. But after a while, I was like, wait a second. I had a dream that there was something meaningful, like way beyond, way beyond my own, the, you know, the couple inches between here and here. You know, I, I believe there was something more meaningful than that. And now that I've been to university and met all the professors who believe there's not, you know, and, and we're pretty good at arguing it. So I was like, I was defeated in my dream. My dream was gone. And then I got, I got depressed. I was despondent. I was like, uh, you couldn't reach me. I was so, I was gone. And so here I was in Santa Barbara in university. And, and, uh, and then the Gulf War broke out where uh, uh, George Bush invades um, Kuwait. And, uh, you know, there's a whole war going on. And, and I'm thinking the only real thing I know is love. I mean, the, the, I know what it feels like to be hurt. You know, I know what love is. I don't know if anything else is real, but love's real. And meanwhile, the U.S. were like, you know, they had, blind, you know, today we have masks. They had, they had red, white, and blue blindfolds. Of like, you know, free Kuwait, free Kuwait. You know, they're, they're like, hey, uh, honey, go get an atlas. Let's see where Kuwait is. They didn't even know where it was. Who had ever heard of Kuwait? Yeah, you'd have to be like in the oil business to know where Kuwait was. Because that was about the only reason the U.S. went there. And the, and so... And so they, here they are freeing Kuwait. America's got its army. You know, the whole, like, war machine is, like, go, turned on. And here I am, this, like, existential hippie in Santa Barbara, wondering why, we're, why we got to fly thousands of miles away to go kill people who invaded a country that has somehow, uh, you know, gotten in the way of a gas pipeline for the U.S., you know, with, with some, like... Oh, free Kuwait, you know. <laughs> How about freeing all the African nations that got invaded in the last year? Mm, nah, we're not going to free them. You know, we're going to free Kuwait, you know, our new favorite place. So, so the, uh, anyway, so I was protesting the Gulf War at university that year. And I, I was going into classes with like 500 people and screaming, you know, against the war and covering myself with ketchup and dying in the middle of the uh, campus, you know. And... But deep down in my heart, I was pain, pain, deep pain. You know, I wanted, I wanted something real. I wanted something meaningful. I wanted, I wanted something, something true. You know, give me something true. Give me something real. And, and real was not available. So that's how that went. Now, here's the amazing part. This is the best part of the story. My father's business goes bankrupt. He loses everything. All his competitors went overseas, and my father actually was was faithful to his factory in Yuma, Arizona, which is right over the border from El Centro, Mexico. And 
He, uh, he was faithful. He, he actually saved the town during a time of depression 20 years earlier uh, by building his factory there. And he didn't want to drop all the people there. In the end, they got dropped and we got dropped too, which is how I got to Israel, which is incredible. You know, it was all meant to be. But the best thing that ever happened to me and my family, including my father, who, you know, again, who lost his business, the greatest thing that ever happened was this bankruptcy. Why? Because my father promised me that when I get my university degree, that he's sending me on a world tour surfing. And I can go, I've already toured all over, but I can go for like years at a time. I can just tour, go surfing around the world and like never come back. And, and here I was, though, it was my last year of university. I'm, I'm, I've realized, I don't, even, I don't even know if I want to tour, you know, I'm like, it's like more distraction that's not even working anymore. Because you know, if you ever felt depressed that people try to distract you, it doesn't work. And, and what happened was, my, my oldest brother, Sam, who if you've ever checked out Sam, go online and check out Rabbi Sam Glazer. He's a, he's a character. Go on YouTube and check him out. So you, you see all my brothers. I have another brother, Aaron. He's, a, he's vice president of Chase Bank in Beverly Hills. He's a Breslever chassid. Okay? He's Breslever. And the, anyway, our family had this like incredible transformation because of this bankruptcy. But the, uh, anyway, the... So my brother Sam, he was at, he was not a, he was not a religious Jew at the time. He, he was, uh, he, but he was at Aisha Torah, the same program that I met Moshe, Rabbi Tuzier. He was at that same program seven years earlier. And he never told me about it. You know, you know why? He told me later, he said he was afraid if he ever told me, I would never come back. If I, if he ever told me what was there, I would go check it out and I would never come back. He was right. I never came back. In fact, I'm speaking to you all right here in Jerusalem, 2020. 20, oh my gosh, June 24th. Are we near June 24th? June 24th is the day I made, I made Aliyah, that I came to Israel with my hundred payas coming down my back. Are, is it? Is it? Does anyone know what date it is? Is it? Is it near? What's today's date? Is it the it's tw- 25th? Oh, 25th is I flew out the 24th. So, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm teaching this class on my 29th. That was 1991. It's 2000. It was 29 years ago, right? Does that make sense? 29. So, it's uh, today is my 29th anniversary of making Aliyah to Israel. Wow, that's cool that I'm teaching this. Uh, we'll make a lachaim with my lemonade. Chaim, everybody. And also, in honor of the, the yard site of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, today is Rabbi Schneerson's yard site. And uh, actually, I actually have a son who's uh, at an event right now here in Jerusalem in, that, in the honor of that. Um, L'chaim, everybody. I don't have any booze. I'm sorry. I just have my lemonade. I, I could put some tequila in it later if you want. If you really want. I hope through this video you realize that I got my joy back. Is that clear? Yeah, I got my joy back. And, and, and I did not have to, I did not have to uh, suspend logic. What I had to do was meet rabbis who knew a hell of a lot more than those professors. That's what I had to do. You understand? Like, it was not, it's not a leap of faith, you know. It's not Christianity. This is, this is Judaism. And Judaism, the more you use your brain, the better. I remember when we, were, when we were first in Jerusalem, we were with these rabbis. Like, some of these kids, they didn't understand the rabbis' arguments. You know, they were like, 
They're like, they're not used to these kind of arguments. I was used to this kind of stuff, but a lot of the students who came were not. So one of them felt like, wow, he's starting to keep Shabbat. He's starting to keep kosher. He's starting to do everything. So, but he got scared in one of the classes, one of the big rabbis there, he raises his hand and he says to the rabbi, he says, how do I know you're not brainwashing us? You know what the rabbi said back? He said, first, let's see if you have a brain, then we'll talk about washing it. So, so in other words, like we needed to use our brains, you know, and uh, another student in the class was coming from L.A. as well. He was like, I need a lot of washing, a lot of washing. Yeah, my brain, very dirty, my dirty brain, this, this kid was saying. So, so the um, anyway, the the um, uh, I got to keep an eye on the time because we're going to do several things as well, uh, not just the story. But the, so I, so my father's bankruptcy turned out that my brother, Sam called Jerusalem. He called the, the rabbis at Asian Torah, who are now rabbis. They were his fellow students at the time, but he called them and he said, you know, remember me, Sam Glazer. And they're like, yeah, we remember you. You know, and he's like, well, listen, I've been saving this for seven years, but I want you to bring my brother Yom Tov to Jerusalem. My English name was Johnny. Yeah. I want you to bring my brother to Jerusalem. And he needs a scholarship. My father's business went bankrupt. Now, my father promised me a round-the-world tour, but because of the bankruptcy, he couldn't pay for it. And I'll tell you, the last place I would have gone was Israel. I mean, think about it. I'm, I'm protesting the Gulf War, the U.S. involvement in the Gulf War, which is protecting Israel from the Scud missiles. Like, I don't even, I'm not even thinking Jewishly. I would have been like a BDS guy, you know, those millennial left-wingers who want to, like, divest from Jerusalem, you know. So, so that's the kind, that's where I was at with atheist philosophy. And, and so, you know, that's, that's where I was going and I would never have gone to Israel, but because of, and I didn't know my brother called them even, I didn't know my brother called Jerusalem. He, but they agreed, they gave me the scholarship and, and I get a phone call from my brother. I'm in Santa Barbara. He's in LA. He calls me up. He says, how would you like a free trip to Israel? I said, that's, sorry, <laughs> Would you like a free trip to Europe? I said, yeah, of course, you know, I'll go to France, Spain. I just surfed with a professional tour of France, Spain, Portugal the previous year. So I'll go, I'll go back, France, Spain, Portugal, Morocco, South Africa. And then I was going to renounce my citizenship to the U.S. and move to, um, move to, uh, uh, Australia. Once I got to, you know, the Southern Hemisphere, I was going to move to Australia. Anyway, so, so I said, yeah, I'll take that ticket for sure. And anyway, I, I, um, I got the ticket. The only catch was going to Israel for six weeks. I packed all my surfboards, flew off to Jerusalem. And, uh, and within days, I was, you know, I was, I was up every night, you know, almost all night. Many of the nights I saw sunrise talking to the students at Eshet Torah and, and discovering the, the, oh my gosh, my brother, my brother Aaron's on Facebook. Hey, bro. <laughs> I don't know if I'll tell part of my brother's amazing story here, but uh, I think we, we won't have time. But the, anyway, all night long, speaking to these rabbis, and, uh, and sorry, speaking to the students, all day long with the rabbis. And I was just like, yes, yes. And there was a whole other thing that, that was amazing for me that's a deep insight. And that is that the limitations. See, a lot of us think of Judaism as restrictive, and my upbringing was the opposite of restrictive. But the problem with having no restrictions is that there's no context to things. 
There's no meaning, like meaning. See, restrictions bring context to things. For example, in marriage, restrictions. You know, if I'm out, if if you're out to dinner with your wife, but you stare at the waitress on her way back to the kitchen, so that's breaking a restriction that ruins the ruins the atmosphere. Your wife's going to turn cold when you do that. So when you go to a movie theater and people keep their phones on, so there's a restriction. Turn your phone off, you know, and that's that helps. That makes things possible. Shabbat, you restrict yourselves from from the uh, from the thirty nine creative acts of malacha. So so that when you restrict yourself from that, that creates the conditions for families to connect, for families to truly bond, and for connection to God, which is the point of Shabbat. So restrictions are really our best friend. You know, we like, I'm sure Mexico has some highways with no lines on it, but it's good to have lines on the highway. It restricts the cars, so now you can, you can go even faster. I mean, without those lines, I would be slower. With the lines, hey, blah, pedal to the metal, you know, thanks for the restrictions. Now I can move. Now I'm comfortable. Now, I'm, now I know I'm safe in this lane, and now I can go 85 miles per hour knowing that I'm, you know, that I'm in my lane. So, so restrictions are, are actually an amazing thing. And I grew up without them. Okay. There were very few restrictions in my life growing up. I think my father's only, what was my father's only rule? Uh, maybe my brother, Hey bro, uh, Aaron, can you, he's sending a message. He said, Hey bro. So maybe, can you send me one of the rules we had growing up? <laughs> Do you remember a rule? Okay. I, I don't think we had any, but, um, I think one of the rules was, was not to smoke, uh, not to smoke, uh, weed. I think that was one of our rules, not to smoke weed. And uh, I don't think we kept that one. So, so the, so the, you know, once in a while my father would ask us, why, why don't you quit smoking weed? We'd say, you taught us never to quit. <laughs> so, <laughs> listen, the, uh, the, the point is, is that, that without those restrictions, I'll tell you something interesting. That if you too much restriction, you feel unsafe when you're on the other side of the fictional walls, you know, because if you make if you make for your children fictional walls and that means it's safe on the other side of that wall, they're going to feel unsafe there. But if you give them no restrictions at all, they're also going to feel unsafe. And I think sometimes I think about this. (laughs) My brother sent a restriction on Facebook. He wrote, don't hit Johnny. (laughs) Don't hit me. That was our, that was his restriction not to hit me. And, um, anyway, but I do believe that my desire for bigger and bigger and bigger waves was, was, and all the crazy partying and like pushing the envelope, pushing the envelope. I was looking for the edge because my parents never showed it to me. There was no edge. There were no restrictions. And so I always felt the boogeyman was like right on the other side of the world. And I had to like push through limits to see where the edge of life was. And I, and I just pushed in every way I could. I pushed. I think it was good for me, but then again, you know, I had the kind of father who could bail me out of anything. You know, I told you, he has a lot in common with Donald Trump. <laughs> and so he was very good at bailouts, you know, and he, he bailed me out of every kind of situation. I think he bailed out uh, my brothers as well quite a few times. But, uh, but no restrictions at all is, is dangerous. So when, now, I wouldn't have ever accepted restrictions unless they were true. And once I realized there was a God, like there's God. So, okay, there's God. And once I realized Torah is divine, like Torah is not a man-made document. It's actually God-given. Oh, limits that are true. That I'm in. You want to tell me there's true limits? That I'm in. 
And once I got those limits, well, first of all, once I found out that God, that there's God, that means there is meaning in life. There's a purpose. There's a purpose to life. There's a purpose to history. It's, called, it's not called history for nothing. His story. It's his story. Yeah. Capital H. Yeah, there's a purpose to life. Everything like we don't always know what's going on. You know, sometimes sometimes our nose is pressed against the, you know, the the screen. So we can't get any perspective like Corona. Why did that happen? You know, but then you back out, you back out a bit. And you suddenly see everything and you understand God's plan for creation. But it's not just that there's a plan for your life. Like there's a plan for your life. There's a plan. There's a reason why you're the way you are. I mean, there's a reason why I couldn't, you know, survive school. You know, like I was terrible in school. Um, it was because my brain, it wasn't that I didn't have a good one. It just doesn't work that way. My brain's for different applications. And and thank God I've been able to touch so many people around the world, including now, with you all, is because my brain works specifically. Not in a way, not in a generic way that the education system believed it should. And and there's a place for every Jew in Torah. Like, I found my place in Torah. My place in Torah was more Kabbalistics, Hasidut and... And the, the secrets of Torah, like that, that was much more my speed. I was a, I'm a searcher, you know, like you too. You know? And I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. I have climbed highest mountains. Yeah, so... So I've been searching, and I'm still searching. The search never ends. But finding out there was a God meant there's meaning. And all of a sudden, my search for meaning was, was answered with, me, with joy. And my joy came. And then, the, and then the Torah, I have restrictions? You mean, you mean like I can create stuff inside the boundaries of, of divine, heavenly law? Like, wow, that's, that is amazing. And I've been using it ever since. You know, I'm, I'm very careful with the restrictions. Now, I love them. I think I'm more into the restrictions than most people. But there's something I want to tell you since we just spoke about restrictions. There's something I want to share with you. And that is that a lot of people believe Torah's, Torah will, like, take away the things you love. And I'll tell you, the, the, who we have to blame for that a lot is the, the people with the black hattitude. Yeah, no, no offense to people in black hats and black coats and all that. What are they called? The Haredim. Yeah. They're react, they were reacting to the, you know, the Enlightenment movement. And, you know, about 200 years ago, Jews just left Judaism like, like it was like some old, old thing that you don't, nobody needs anymore. 200 years ago, right after the Industrial Revolution, was the Enlightenment movement. And Jews left Judaism like, boom, gone, 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 gone. They assimilated very, very quickly. And so what, they, what the, the Jews who wanted to hold on to Torah and the beauty of Torah and the, and the relationship with God, they created this like black hat style called Haridim, which is like a very strong station identification where with dress and with code and with, with uh, it being even more strict in such a way that it's very clear to our children growing up that which team they're on. Because, you see, throughout history, there was Jews and Gentiles. You don't need team colors for that. Like, you know, if you're a Jew, you're literate, you can read, you're, you know. There were kings who couldn't read throughout history. Gentiles were like toothless, illiterate buffoons. So you didn't need the Haredi movement to delineate who you are. It was quite obvious who you are. But for the first time ever, Jews had left Judaism. 
in major numbers, not so much in the Syrian community, but the Ashkenazi community, forget about it. They took off like, they just dropped Judaism like a hot potato. And they, and so what they did was the Haredi movement was to create station identification for their children. And, but the thing is, is for you, for us, we look at that and we're like, wow, you know, that's like, that's like, it's un-American. It's not very, you know, it doesn't look like fun. It doesn't look loving. It doesn't look caring. In fact, it looks, if anything, judgmental. And you know what? I feel judged by these people. And I don't want to be anywhere near somebody who judges me. But the truth is, is if all you have to do is have one Shabbat dinner, go to Shabbat one time to any of those families, even the one you thought was the most judgmental, you know, they walk around the street like, and you go to them for Shabbat, you'll see they don't have a, they don't have a, 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 a tiny millimeter of judgment inside of them. There is no judgment. They've made some moves to give their kids a sense of safety and belonging, but judgment? They don't have any judgment. There's no judgment for anybody. I mean, every once in a while, you know, one in a hundred is some kind of nutcase. But but uh, but he's a nutcase. That, uh, one in one hundred people everywhere in the world are nutcases. So, I mean, once in a while you get a nutcase. We actually, in my community here in Jerusalem, we have a rule that no one's allowed to sell or rent to a nutcase. <laughs> Meaning of one of these super judgmental, like crazy guys who wants to make, uh, you know, he wants to, make, uh, what do they call, Hafkano protests, you know, keep Shabbat, you know, or don't drive, you know. They, uh, they, you're not allowed to rent or sell to any of anyone like that in my community. And if you saw the people in my community, you'd be thinking like, like, wow, these people are like, you know, they probably all want to like throw rocks at cars. Nobody wants that. So here's what I, here's what I wanted to share with you is that, is that, Judaism is not here to take away the things you love. Okay, repeat with me. Judaism is not here to take away the things you love. Let's do that one more time. Judaism is not here to take away the things you love. I, sometimes I think that's just the Yetzirah. Like people like the, the, the Yetzirah says, oh, wow. Let's see, how can I keep her away from Judaism? Oh, I know. Let's make her think that Judaism is there to take away the things that she loves. Yeah, that that that'll be a good way to get her not to study Torah or something. So, so Ju- it's not like that at all. Judaism does forbid certain things, but but one of them is not joy. Another one's not guitar, you know, and music. Another one's not beer, services. Yeah, another one is not um, not. Uh, f- f- sports and music and everything. Like you might people. When someone once asked me like. You know, someone raised their hand in my class here in Jerusalem overlooking the, you know, the Kotel. And they said, uh, so Rabbi Glazer, what was the hardest thing to give up? What was the hardest thing to give up in your change of lifestyle? And so I thought for a second, no one ever asked me that before. So I was thinking, hmm, what was the hardest thing to give up? By the way, I couldn't figure it out. I figured it out later. Like a week later, I figured out what was the hardest thing. Um, But there I was in class. I couldn't figure out what it was. And then I finally said to them, I didn't give up anything. I only added. I've only added the whole time. I've added. And, and you know, I made a whole list on the board of everything I loved, you know, growing up in my secular life in L.A. I made a list of every single thing. And, and I said, like, I do all this stuff. There's nothing I don't do here. And all I've done is add wisdom and Shabbat and Kiddush and 
and, uh, and singing and tefillah. And I've added a lot. I have not subtracted anything. Now, again, I wasn't crazy about lobster. And I didn't, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't know what else. So, so someone raised their hand. They said, what about girls? What about girls? And I said, well, I mean, you could take a little uh, walk with me to the other side of Jerusalem and I'll introduce you to my girl. Yeah, my woman. You know, so, so like, I don't think I gave that up either. And, you know, those eight kids didn't come from nowhere. Yeah. So, so I didn't give up, I didn't give up girls either. I maybe gave up girls, but I didn't give up girl. And, and that restriction has given my heart the chance to be held fully by somebody, which is all we really want is someone to hold our heart. And so, wow, what a, what a difference to have your heart held, you know, where it's not about being popular or looking good in the eyes of others, but it's. How about someone just holds your heart? Someone you can be transparent with, share your whole life with, and, uh, and be one with somebody. So, like, what did I give up? So Judaism really just wants us to enjoy. And when we enjoy it, there, there's an added level, and this is, like, why I'm saying I love Kabbalah. The added level is, is that, well, how are you enjoying it? You're enjoying it with, um, with God. You're with God enjoying it. You know, I'll tell you a little secret. I hope I won't get in trouble for this. But, uh, but the Kabbalists teach us, including Rav Yosef Karo and the Shulchan Aruch, the Kabbalists teach us that, that um, you know, I'm not going to get graphic about this, but let's say at the, cli- the climax moment in intimacy is to be in the pitch black for that moment. Why? Because when it's pitch black, it's like Shema. You can't see anything. And when you know that Hashem Echad, Hashem is one and there's nothing else, Enod Milvado, there's nothing but Hashem. Enod Milvado, Enod, there is nothing Milvado but Hashem. And you're in the pitch black. And you're talking about the, the Brit Milah here, the covenant between you and God. So, so who are you making love with? You understand that, that and, if, and if it goes for the Brit, right, the Brit, then it goes for everything. Like New York, New York, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. If you can bring God into that, you can bring God into music, you can bring God into food, you can bring God into, into touring, go see the Swiss Alps and enjoy Elohim, like the, the, the godliness inside the Swiss Alps. God wants you to see that. Great rabbis went to see some of the beauties of the world, the wonders of the world, like the Swiss Alps. And they asked him, Rabbi, why are you going there? He says, I'm afraid I'll get to Shemayim, to heaven, and God's going to ask me, did you see my Alps? Did you see them? Judaism's not here to take away our pleasure. It's here to maximize our pleasure. How do you maximize pleasure? You need to limit it a little bit, and then you can maximize it. Every pleasure you get is always through a limitation. It's got to be some kind of limitation. You know, in my studio here, i got these incredible JBL studio monitor speakers here. Yeah, they're limiting things all over the place to get the sound perfect. And that it, it's just the frequencies. It's that frequency, not more. That frequency. The tweeters are that frequency. The mid, mids are that frequencies. And the subs are that frequency. And, and it's got to be limited to get the pleasure of the, of the speaker system. Everything is this way. 
and that is the beauty of, of God's world. But, but when you try to live limitless, a millennial, you know, like everything's meaningless and it doesn't even matter if you're boy or girl, it's all the same. Everything's, everything's meaningless, you know. So that's going to that's gonna take everybody down. That's going to destroy our world that we live in. And, and nobody needs that. Nobody needs that. Now, I understand, you know, that what's their alternative? You know, the Catholic Church or something. You know, like, okay, maybe meaninglessness is better than that. But it's not better than Torah. It's not better than God and Torah and the life of Torah. The meaninglessness, no. Not better than that. Not at all. And um, so I'd like to lead you all in a little meditation. Uh, we have a few minutes for a meditation. I'll grab my guitar and then uh, we'll finish with a, a little song. and breathe in and out. Release all your breath through your mouth, releasing all the breath as your stomach contracts, tightening the stomach muscles. And inhale through the nose as you expand the stomach muscles like you're filling a balloon. And now hold your breath. And with your eyes closed, let your eyes wander upward between your eyebrows. Exhale through the mouth now slowly as the stomach tightens. Slowly releasing your breath. Tightening the stomach muscles as you push out the air. And now inhaling through the nose as the stomach expands, holding your breath now, and even though your eyes are closed, you're focusing your eyes upward between your eyebrows, exhale now through the mouth slowly, make your lips small like a straw as you slowly release the air stomach contracting, inhaling through the nose as the stomach expands, holding the breath, eyes up. Holding the breath, 
eyes up. Exhale slowly as you release all of your air. As the stomach contracts, releasing any tension. And when you have no more air in your body, hold your breath for a moment. And when you need to breathe, inhale. You know, our deepest desire, breathing normally now, our deepest desire is love. We want to love and we want to be loved and we want to have that love. And what is love? Love is connection. It's to be one. You know, you spent the first nine months of your life in the undifferentiated oneness of your mother's womb. Total oneness. Ever since you were born, all you have ever wanted is to get back to that oneness. Hopefully you had a good and beautiful, warm, loving, safe family to be one with. But nevertheless, your deepest desire is to be, to be one, to be loved, to be cherished, respected recognized, significant, to be one with others. But unfortunately, something stands in the way of love. Love is often blocked. The path to love is, is blocked. And what blocks our path to love is our own lack of love for ourselves. You see, you believe that you're loved only conditionally. Even though when you were a little two-year-old toddler, a beautiful little child, loved unconditionally, when you got older, you began to become loved conditionally. That love only comes conditionally. So it has many categories, those conditions. There's how smart you are. There's your body weight. There's your looks. There's your abilities. There's your financial standing. And you'll notice when you meet somebody, it's very hard to feel that love. Rather, you feel anxiety. It's an anxious experience. Because you don't know this person yet, you're just meeting them. And there's all these categories that you don't know about. Wealth, smarts, wisdom, abilities. And so it's really hard to love that person because if they were to outdo you in those categories, you would feel very unsafe. 
wouldn't feel good about yourself. This is why our Torah says, Ve'ahavta l'reacha kamocha. Love your neighbor, kamocha, as yourself. Because only in as much as you love yourself can you love another person. Meaning if you find out that in the categories of life that they are your equal or below you, you will love them. But if they are above you, you will not like them very much. You would prefer to talk to somebody else because they remind you of the holes inside your system, inside your heart. But the Torah gives us a great key to how to love all people. Love your neighbor as yourself. That only in as much as you love yourself can you love your neighbor. But then there's Ani Hashem, which means I am God. Now, wherever the Torah says Ani Hashem, I am God, it's usually referring to I am God to pay the reward for this mitzvah. But the Kabbalists teach us Ani Hashem there means I, meaning you, are Hashem. Because you were created with a neshama. And the neshama is part of Hashem. And when I generate from neshama, when my generator is neshama, so this person and me are the same. We are equal. There are no categories. We are the same. So when you realize that you, who you really are, is this neshama, your soul, you start realizing certain things about yourself. One of them is that you're wanted. God wants you here because if, if he didn't want you here, you wouldn't be here. And that you also have a purpose. that you're loved as God creates you with eyes nose and a mouth and blessings everywhere all around you a body that perfectly interfaces with the environment around you and he watches every step you are safe he loves you and he's securing you And he also gives purpose for your life. There's a reason you're here, which also means that you're capable. Because he would not create you with a purpose if you were not capable of fulfilling it. outside of themselves when love begins with you only as much as you love yourself can you love another person and how do you love yourself by knowing that God 
creates you within neshama. A portion of God from above. That's who you are. And when God creates you as a portion of God from above, that means this beautiful child inside of you can shine his or her light. I am love. I'm a sea of love. Whisper the words. I'm a sea of love. You'll notice as you relate to yourself, your identity as the Neshama, straight from God. You're beautiful, good, uniquely brilliant and capable. You will find a deep wellspring of love for yourself and you will feel safe to love others. And you will become a sea of love. Whisper the words, I'm a sea of love. And everyone can come swim in my sea of love. on your arms, sorry, on your legs or on your table, desk, and open them towards the Shemaim. Sing. Everything you ever thought or believed negative about yourself. 
touch with a child's heartbeat. It's beating strong. Whisper to the child, I'm sorry I let you go. I should never have let you go. Get in touch with a child's heartbeat. Beautiful child. Whisper, I'll never let you go. It's okay to cry. Tell the child it's okay to cry. Whisper. Take a smaller step. Take a deeper breath. Let your motor cool. Slow down to a crawl as your defenses fall. Feel your soul refuel. Everything you thought about yourself, all that you believed, hold it in your hands and let it go. Nothing left to fear. Open to receive. Setting free the child, the beautiful child. A simple song, laugh so hard you're crying. Chase a butterfly, climb a mountainside. Once again, you're flying. The person of your dreams is coming into view. Nobody can take that dream away. Somebody who trusts, somebody who shares, someone like the child, the beautiful child in you. Everyone you love wants you to achieve. They want to meet the child, the beautiful child in you. The beautiful child is you.
numbers one through five, the number five, opening up your eyes, coming up one, two, three, four, and five, opening up your eyes. So we're actually, um, it's amazing that we just did this together because um, starting uh, just a few things you can know about things I'm doing, and I'd love to be there for you, with you. Um, uh, Sunday, um, I, I've moved my seminars, one of which I ran in Mexico City. It's all about how to find your beautiful child again and generate from that power source of the Nishoma. It's very deep work, but that's, that's going on every other week, men's and women's. This Sunday is a women's one. And um, you can just go on my website and get a free, um, free, uh, you know, a free trial the first day. It's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Tomorrow it's going to be uh, Mexico time, it's two to th- two to four p.m. It'll be going on. Uh, sorry, Sunday, two to four p.m. will be the women's one, and you can just go on to rabbiyomtov.com and sign up for that. Um, I don't think you even need to sign up for that, but you can sign up for the week if you want. If you sign up by tomorrow, there's a coupon with a discount. And, uh, and then there's, um, and every night for free, I run a, uh, ask the rabbi at this time every day to, uh, uh, Mexico time, 1 PM. I have ask Rabbi Yom Tov and it's, uh, that's on zoom every day. And that, that's also on my website, Rabbi And, uh, and there'll be men in two weeks if the men would like to come. It's also men who are into Making money, you know, it's very, very good for breaking out of your, the things holding you back. And uh, there's one more thing. Oh, yeah. You know, I developed this program with uh, Latin Americans, actually, um, from Chile. Uh, that's called Desire. So I'm running a, a four-part series called Desire. That's also on my website. It's going to be every Sunday, two hours a day on Sundays, called Desire. And it's how to get, because everything comes from Desire, like... Like, you're only on this webinar right now because you wanted, you desired to be here. So everything comes from desire. So, so it's how to really master desire and make sure you're harnessing it appropriately. Okay, so questions and answers. We have some time for some questions, please. And please, uh, from the... Yeah, please. Um, it was amazing. And I know you for like three years and you have changed my life. But I have, I have somebody, a friend, a good friend of mine, that he wants to ask, he wants to ask you something live. So he's in screen already. Oh, great. That's Avram. Okay. Hello. Hello, Rob. How are you? Fine, Avram. Shalom. Beautiful, beautiful meditation. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, Rob, uh, this morning I was studying next week's parasha, uh, Balak. Yeah. And uh, I, I read uh, uh, this blessing from, from Bilam. Uh, who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of of the seed of Israel? Okay. My question is this: What sort of complement and blessing is comparing Jacob to dust, and what virtue is there in the fact that no one can count them? What is the deep meaning of of this blessing? Excellent. So, um, so there's uh, two there's two ways that we are. Um, referred to either the stars of the sky or the dust, and he right. he did he went for the dust. So, so the the dust of 
of, there's a couple of understandings. So one of them is that when the Jews aren't doing, that we're still going to be multiplied throughout history. There's going to be, meaning we'll be, we are always going to be few in number that you can count on earth. Jews will always be few in number, but we're going to be, um, but we're going to be massive when you look through all of history because we'll never go away. Other nations will come and go. The Jews will be here forever till the end of days because we are an eternal nation. And so, so that you can never count because it's ne- it never ends. And we keep in every generation, we're more. But when we do God's will, we're like the stars. And when we don't do God's will, we're like the dust. So that, yeah, yeah, it's not, a, not great to be counted like the dust. So, and then you obviously notice that, like, why the dust? So, so when we, does, yes. yeah, so when we do, why, why this is referring, uh, it's, it's, it's like, uh, uh, they said that this is one of the blessings that Bilam gave to, to, to uh, Jewish people. Yeah. Referring, yeah. But he sneaks in the dust. Cause remember, Bilam doesn't like yes. us very much. So he's, he's sneaking in the word dust instead of stars. Okay. And he's also bringing up the fact that we will make mistakes throughout history and that we will, we will be like more like the dust than we are the stars. Instead of being light, we are opaque like the dust. And, um, and the, the other thing about it is that you cannot count. You mentioned not being able to count. Yes. So you know that it's forbidden to count Jews. And, yes. and the reason is because they, there's many reasons, but one of the main things is that we're not countable because what you see is not what you get. There, there's, a, oh. there's a universe inside of each one and we're, you can't count okay. us. Yeah, because you can't, you can't, there's no number. Okay. Nice, nice to meet you. Look me up when you're in Jerusalem. Okay. Sure, I will. Thank okay. you very much. Welcome. Any other questions? Yeah. One question only. Your, your favorite book and one book that you can recommend us. Oh, wow. Uh, my favorite book. So, um, I imagine you're talking about Jewish books, yeah. <laughs> so, anything, yeah. So, so my favorite book is a book called Shar Yichud Vemuna. Shar Yichud Vemuna uh, means the gate of uh, of oneness and faith. Shar Yichud Vemuna, and it's easily found because in every um, in every every Tanya is is three parts. And the first, the second part is called Shar Yichud Ve'emunah. And Shar Yichud Ve'emunah is, uh, is all about how, how God is imminent in creation. I mean, he's not just outside, but he's inside. And it explains detail after detail how God actually fills the world, not just is outside, but he's also in. It's like a burrito, yeah? He's not just the tortilla. Yeah, he's the rice and the beans inside, so... That's one of my favorite books, and it's a good one to read. Um, people who like Kabbalah, though, they can always get Arya Kaplan books, which are uh, explain the Kabbalah quite well. Okay, any other questions? Yes, Rabbi. There is uh, Orly Salame. She wants to ask somebody. She wants to ask live, so we're putting her in camera. That's great that you can um, you can choose different people. That's wonderful. I'm going to put to everybody the uh, just my website.
I'll also put my WhatsApp in case anyone needs me. I'm going to put my WhatsApp on the chat. Um, if anyone ever has a private issue, a question, they need something from me. Um, I'm here for the world. You know, I, I live and breathe the Jewish people. So if you ever have a question, you can um, just go plus nine, seven, two, five, two, eight, three, four, four, six, six, four, and send me a WhatsApp. Yes. She's coming by. Okay. Bum, 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 bum. Orly, nada más prende tu cámara. Ah, there she is. Yeah, she has to turn on her camera. Hi, Orly. And your her microphone also. Oh, hi, Orly. Yeah. Yeah, hi. Thank you so much about this speech. I really enjoy it. Thank you. And any type of book is secular but kosher that you can recommend? <laughs> um, sure. The So I found the book that there's two books that are very powerful um, and in this order. is can, What? They can be in English. So yeah. So one, I think they're both in Spanish. I think they're both in Spanish too, but the... Uh, the the one the the teacher is named uh, Eckhart Tolle. You might have heard of Eckhart Tolle, and the book is called A New Earth. Um, but you have to know if you read his books, two things: one is that he's a Buddhist, and so everything he says is going to come from Buddhism, and uh, two is that um, is that he's going to quote other religions trying to, you know, be like, you know, like, so they would listen, but he's not, uh, he doesn't believe in any of those religions. And, uh, oh, he was Oprah Winfrey's Rebbe, by the way, Oprah Winfrey, the famous Oprah. So he's her Rebbe. And she actually, when she became his student, she, uh, renounced Christianity publicly in front of the whole world which I don't think he wanted her to do. I think he, she didn't know you have to ask your Rebbe if you want to do something crazy. So uh, she did that. Anyway, but he's, uh, but you, you have to know he's Buddhist. The reason I bring up his book is because um, it is a, it's a super, super special uh, way to become healthy inside so that you're no longer, so that your ego is no longer getting in the way of your joy. And that's really important. Because even if you know all of the Torah, but your your ego's making you unhappy. So then it's, this is one of the best written books. Anyway, it's called A New Earth. But you have to read it carefully, and you have to be careful of his uh, Eastern, uh, Eastern type of stuff. Got it? When you finish that book, you can read The Power of Now. He wrote a book called The Power of Now. Thank you so much. Welcome. Uh, any other questions? No, there is something in the chat. I don't know if you can read it. Uh, yeah. How is punishment of samej to eat dust uh, related to the comparison to Balaam's blessing? Oh, my gosh. Um, I don't know what samej means. Does that mean the snake? The curse of the, the punishment oh. of... The... Uh, maybe, yes. Samechmen. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> so... I got it. Um, so the snake 
the snake's commanded to eat dust. Now, now dust is Kabbalistically represents the past. That's the past. And, and what, what it means that the snake eats the dust is that it's constantly, it's letting the past constantly run his life. He's, he's, uh, He's eating the, he's eating the memories, nostalgia. He's he's eating, he eats the past, and and whenever you get held back by the past, the dust. So so that's that's basically meaning. Don't be a snake. Move on. Move on with your life. Don't let the ba- don't let the past run your life. Don't make it rule your life, and you you move on. And so, with the connection of Balaam's, Balaam's blessing um, of the Jews, if you want to make it connected to the to the past, is uh, <sighs> you got me on that. I wasn't expecting that. You know, I don't know how to relate it to to that. I mean, I, we could sit down over a beer, and I could probably figure it out after a while. I don't see it so practically connecting those two. Okay, um, any others? I'm teaching in a, in at four thirty in the morning, at five in the morning, to New York. So the men's possible use seminars on Zoom are regular hours. You know, they're uh, you know it's nine to eleven Mexico time next follow not this coming week next week. So I have to wake up at four thirty to do it. Thank you so much, Rabbi Sure, it was amazing, and we have so many commentaries that that were so connected to it. Hmm. We thank you so much, and hopefully we can do an experience in Puerto Escondido. <laughs> yeah, we gotta do a sh- we gotta do like a whole program there with a big house for the boys, a big house for the girls, and and uh, I'll spend a few hours with each during the day. They'll travel the other times, have a gorgeous Shabbat, and then go back to Mexico City. Yeah, that's it. We gotta do that. So thank you so much, Ravindo. It was amazing. You inspire us so much, and we thank you. Thank you for your time <laughs> and effort. Thank and you. We miss you so much. Okay, I miss Good you guys too. I love you. Okay, bye. Bye bye. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Gracias a todos por conectarse y les mandamos la la grabación. Se los mandamos por por WhatsApp para que la tengan. And please, everybody, join next week's seminar. Let's do it. Okay. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.